Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into our study in the New Testament. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I'm just grateful for this morning that you have brought us here, you've gathered us together, you have sustained us to this morning. Pray that you would continue to do that, you would encourage us from your word, help us to to understand the truths in scripture, and that they would sink into our hearts, we would believe them, we would hold on to them, we would press on. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. In baseball, as in many sports... Many players excel in one particular skill, but not in every skill that they could in the game. You might have a pitcher who could throw 100 miles an hour faster than almost anyone else, but they can't control where the ball goes when they throw it that fast. You might have the opposite, a Greg Maddox, who, can throw, who throws much more slowly, but can put it exactly where he wants every time. You might have a position player with ridiculous speed but no ability to hit, like Gerard Dyson or Terrence Gore for the Royals a few years ago. And you might have the opposite, someone with unbelievable strength and power but with little speed, someone like Salvador Perez. Those who excel in all aspects of their sport are once in a generation. They're often called five-tool players because they have speed, arm strength, good fielding, and an ability to hit both for average and for power. And players with this skill set are some of the best of all time. They're people like Willie Mays or Hank Aaron or Ken Griffey Jr. Many people could match one of their abilities, but few people could match them in every uh, excellent skill set that they have. And our book this morning reminds me of a five-tool player because of its mastery in so many aspects of biblical literature. The book of Hebrews is at once a technical exegesis of the Old Testament, a masterful rhetorical argument, and a heartfelt plea to beloved friends. As a technical exegesis, it's not dry and unintelligible, but engaging. As a masterful rhetorical argument, it's not manipulative, but truthful. And as a heartfelt plea, it is not emotionally sloppy, but sincere. Many books of Scripture are similar to Hebrews in one or two of these aspects, but few can match the way that Hebrews brings them all together. The ESV Study Bible describes Hebrews as profound, distinct, rewarding, puzzling, impassioned, and polished. And this morning, we'll overview this tour de force in two different sections. We'll begin by building a structure through which to understand the book by understanding examining some of the background details, like the author, the setting, the reason, and some of the unique features of the book. And then we'll use that structure to engage with the content of the book as we walk through what it has to say. Let's begin with the background. The authorship of Hebrews, who wrote the book, is one of the most disputed in all of Scripture. Unlike most of the New Testament epistles, this book does not contain an introduction in which the author is named. We know that he was someone who was very well-versed in the Old Testament and well-known to the audience to whom he was writing. He also knew Timothy and mentions him in chapter 13. And he seems to indicate in chapter 2, verse 3, that he never met Jesus personally, but rather heard the gospel through others who did meet Jesus. Now, many people use these details to make educated guesses about the author. Paul is the most common option as the mastery of the Old Testament is reminiscent of Paul in his other writings, 
And many throughout church history have grouped Hebrews together with the other books that Paul has written when they uh, assemble the documents of Scripture. But for every scholar who believes in Pauline authorship, there's at least two who argue against it. Paul met Christ at his conversion, but the author of Hebrews seems to say he never met Christ. And the fact that there's no introduction, like all of the rest of Paul's letters, is a strike against him as well. Outside of Paul, many other options have been offered for the author, including Apollos, Barnabas, Luke, Priscilla, Silas, or Clement of Rome. And unfortunately, there are more arguments against any one author than for them. My own personal opinion, not proved, but opinion, is that Paul did not write the book, and instead it was written by Apollos, who is described in Acts 18 as being a Jew, who was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and able to show by the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. But that truly is just a guess. That's not the official position of Redemption Hill or something that I can prove uh, officially. That's just what I think is most likely. It seems that even as early as the first or second century, while Hebrews was acknowledged as being canonical, they didn't even know who the author was that early. And in 254, less than two centuries after its writing, the church father Origen said, who actually wrote the epistle? Only God knows. We would do well to agree with Origen. We have more certainty about the rest of the background than who wrote the book. We can date it to the late 60s, somewhere between 67 and 69 AD. The author speaks to the audience as if they follow Christ for some time. And so several years would have had to have lapsed after Christ's resurrection in the 30s. And this church has already endured significant persecution. Chapter 13 mentions that Timothy has just been released from prison. And so it seems most likely that this imprisonment occurred after 2 Timothy, since we haven't heard any mention of it before that point. That would lead us to a date at least after 67 AD. And we say that it's almost certainly before 70 AD, because 70 AD was when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The majority of Hebrews describes how Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the Old Covenant. And the temple is perhaps the most significant symbol of that Old Covenant. Its destruction was catastrophic to the Jewish people. And so if the temple had already been destroyed before this letter was written, it seems almost certain that the author would have used it as another proof to say, see, the temple's not around, but Jesus is. Jesus is better. Since he doesn't mention it, it seems almost certain that the book was written before the temple was destroyed. The audience to which the author wrote is composed of believers, though we're not 100% sure where those believers were located. In chapter 13, the author sends greetings from those who come from Italy, which could imply that he was writing to Italy and some refugees from that church had come to meet Paul, so he was sending them greetings from beloved friends. In that case, he'd be writing to a church in Rome, in Italy. But it could also imply that the author was not writing to Italy, but from Italy. He was writing probably in Rome, and those in the church there were sending greetings to whoever he was writing this book to. Either way, we know for sure that the audience was a church, it was believers, and specifically, it was those of Jewish descent. Over and over in the letter, the author intentionally brings up their faith as part of his exhortation, showing that he is certain that they are believers. 
He says they are Christ's house. They share in Christ. They have believed. And the fact that these believers are descendants of the 12 tribes is evident in the author's reason for writing. Over and over in the letter, we find warnings and exhortations for the audience not to return to Judaism, not to go back to the Old Covenant. These people were believers, but they were beginning to wonder if Christianity was actually worth it. Moving from Judaism to Christianity had brought with it significant turmoil and suffering. They had broken familial relationships. They had left the security of the sacrificial system and the tradition and heritage with which they had been raised. Christ had seemed worth it in the beginning, but now they weren't so sure. They no longer had the tangible atonement that they used to in the temple. They didn't have a human high priest that they could see and touch. The further they got away from their heritage, the further they walked into the suffering that accompanied their future in Christ, and the better and better their past looked. This is why the author of Hebrew writes, the overall theme of the letter is that Jesus is better. It looks good back where you came from, but I promise you, Jesus is better. Comparative words like better or more or best are used 25 times in this book to prove this point again and again. Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus is a better high priest. He gives a better rest. He gives a better salvation. He initiates a better covenant. Returning to Judaism looked compelling, but Jesus is better. Hebrews compels the original audience, as well as us today, to believe this truth to draw near to Jesus and not turn to lesser things. Jesus is better. And the author's reason for writing helps us understand the many unique features of the book, which is the last aspect of our background that we'll cover this morning. The first unique feature is the way that Hebrews uses the Old Testament. Because Hebrews is written to Jews about their Jewish heritage, it is immersed in the Jewish scriptures. There are at least 35 explicit quotations from the Old Testament, second only in Scripture to Revelation and how much it quotes the Old Testament. And when not specifically quoting the Old Testament, the author is alluding to it, basing his entire argument in realities from Scripture. He never moves very far away from the Old Testament. And he does this intentionally, showing how foolish it would be to reject Jesus and instead return to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant pointed to Jesus. The author is saying the very scriptures you think supports going back to Judaism actually should lead you to stay with Jesus. He is the Messiah they have been talking about this whole time. And and this is where that exegetical excellence I mentioned at the beginning comes in. The author eloquently shows from God's own words that Jesus is better. He then follows up these proofs from Scripture with a persistent plea to the audience to respond to them. Jesus is the Son of God, so consider his words carefully. Jesus is our merciful high priest, so draw near to him. Jesus' sacrifice is better than bulls and goats, so don't return to them. Jesus offers rest. Let us have faith and turn away from our sin. Now, while many of these exhortations are positive in nature, they're accompanied by numerous warnings as well. And this is another unique feature of Hebrews. 
Seven different times, the author sternly warns the audience not to fall away from Christ. These warnings come with judgment, advising the listeners that if they leave Christ, they're putting their very souls in peril. These passages are some of the most disputed in all of Scripture because at first glance, they can seem to teach that a believer could lose their salvation and be saved, make a mistake, and then fall from that grace. For instance, chapter 10, verses 26 and 27 says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And so some takes warnings like this to say that someone has truly believed in Christ and been justified by him, a true believer, that this person can turn into sin and lose the salvation they once had. And we can say with confidence that this cannot be what Hebrews is teaching. Scripture repeats over and over that when God saves someone, he will bring them to the end. Jesus himself says in John 10, 28, that he knows his sheep and no one can snatch them out of his hand, including that person themselves. Others look at these warnings and believe they warn not against a loss of salvation, but a loss of heavenly rewards. However, the judgment and penalty that is described in these warnings seems much more significant than mere rewards in heaven. So what is actually going on with these warnings from Scripture? Well, we must remember that these warnings are just that, warnings. They are rhetorical devices designed for a specific purpose, to compel the audience not to do what is being warned against. The author is not using these warnings to make a doctrinal statement about the possibility of losing salvation. That's been dealt with elsewhere. Rather, he is pleading with those he considers to be true believers not to abandon their faith. If someone in the audience did turn away from Christ and reject him, that's not an indication that they lost their salvation. Rather, it's a proof that they were not saved to begin with. But even though that's true, it's not the point the author is trying to make. When we read the warnings, we shouldn't get caught up in the doctrinal doctrinal milieu of possibilities and potentialities of what could happen. We should hear the point that the author is trying to make. He's trying to say, leaving Christ leads to death. So hold fast to Jesus and show that your confession is real. Jesus will sustain you to the end, so cling to him. The author doesn't believe that they will fail, but rather writes in confidence that they are believers and that they will prove their true faith. He writes starkly about the reality of abandoning their faith, but he believes firmly that they will not do so because he believes that they truly trust in Christ. And we should read the warnings in the same way. Those who trust in Jesus Christ should seriously consider the judgment stored up for those who turn away from Christ. But this shouldn't create in us a fear of losing our salvation, but rather instill in us a desire to follow Jesus even more. Turning away isn't worth it. Jesus is better. So this is the background of the book of Hebrews. Though we do not precisely know who wrote it, we know it was written to an audience of Jewish believers who were struggling with the question of whether to continue in their faith. Through biblical exegesis, eloquent arguments, and impassioned pleas, Hebrews aims to convince us that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is better. Now, let's look through the content of the book to see that theme fleshed out. 
Consistently throughout the letter, the author will quote the Old Testament, build an extended argument upon it, and then exhort the audience to respond in a certain way. And this style reminds us more of a sermon than a letter. And I considered scrapping my lesson this morning and just reading this sermon to you all. It would take about 45 minutes, and it would probably be better than anything that I could say. But it wouldn't quite have fulfilled our goals for this time this morning, so I chose not to do that. Still, it's important to recognize the sermonic tone of this letter. It is exegesis, but not just. It is argument, but not just. It is exhortation, but not just that. It is all three together. A sermon with all the tools that cannot exhaust even the most diligent theological examination, and yet also tenderly comforts the weak and doubting soul. You could apply a loose outline to this sermon by dividing it into two large sections. From chapter 1 through the first half of chapter 10, we find the bulk of the extended argument. The author's main point of these chapters is Jesus is better, and he sets about to prove that. Then in the second half of the book, excuse me, the second half of chapter 10 through the end of the book, uh, in chapter 13, the author switches his emphasis from proving this point to applying it. Jesus is better, and so, the last three chapters tell us, trust in him. Chapters 1 through 10 tell us that Jesus is better. Chapters 10 through 13 tell us to trust in Jesus. And yet, even that dichotomy is a little bit too precise. For all throughout those first 10 chapters where we find the argument, the author is also exhorting us to trust in Jesus. And in those final three chapters where we hear the application, he's still proving the point even more. We might say that the emphasis at the beginning is weighted towards proving that Jesus is better, and then at the end that emphasis switches to, from proof to application, though both are truly present throughout the entire letter. Hebrews begins in chapter 1 without wasting any time, jumping directly into a discussion of the supremacy of Christ, one of the most beautiful and memorable introductions to any book of Scripture. He says in verse 1, Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Right from the start, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the continuation of God's revealed word. Just as God spoke to us in the Old Testament, he now reveals himself even more through Jesus. The deity of Jesus is on full display here, answering any questions we might have about whether Jesus is truly God, truly the Messiah. Jesus shares in God's glory. He sustains the world with his power. He accomplished our salvation, and he now reigns in majesty on high. Jesus is better. The rest of chapter 1 goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is better than angels, specifically. Quoting from seven different Old Testament passages to show that angels are God's servants, which is good, but Jesus is the royal son of God. 
The author argues in this way both to spotlight the supremacy of Christ, but also to show that angels, revered in Judaism as the ones who delivered the law from God to Moses, did not compare with the Messiah. Jesus is better. And chapter 2 begins with the first application of the book. Because Jesus is better than angels, chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. But since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was deadly to reject the law, the message delivered by angels. And Jesus is better than angels, so it would be even more deadly to reject his message. Therefore, listen to Jesus, embrace him by faith, and do not drift away. Chapter 2 continues speaking about the supremacy of Jesus, but adds in the incarnation reality of his imminent humanity. God put all things in subjection to Jesus, but even in his sovereign rule, Jesus became a man. God, excuse me, Jesus voluntarily put himself positionally lower than the angels who were lesser than him in their nature. And this was good. As verses 17 and 18 say, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus became like us. He suffered like us. And therefore we can draw near to our merciful and faithful high priest, to find comfort and understanding. And we can hear how encouraging those final words of verse 18 are. Jesus is able to help us when we are being tempted. As we face the temptation to fall away, Jesus is there to help. He knows. He gets it. He will not let you go. In chapters 1 and 2, serve as a general introduction to the technical arguments that we will find throughout chapters 3 to 10. They lay a foundation of Jesus as fully God and fully man, true Messiah, sympathetic high priest, author of salvation. And chapter 3 begins exploring those realities more fully. First, by comparing Jesus with Moses. Moses was a faithful servant of God, acting as the preeminent human symbol of the Old Covenant. Moses was good, but Jesus is better. Jesus is not a servant, but the Son. Moses prepared the way, but Jesus is the way. Jesus is the Son who has inherited God's house. And verse 6 of chapter 3 says, We are his house, if, we, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This brings together a truth and a challenge. We who believe in Jesus Christ are God's house. Therefore, hold fast. We have confidence in this truth. We boast in our hope of eternal life. So continue on. Don't let go of your confession. From chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4, verse 13, the author moves into an exploration of Psalm 95. This psalm of David itself refers back to another scripture, Numbers 14, where the nation of Israel was on the verge of receiving the Abrahamic promise of the land of Canaan, but instead grew fearful at the size and strength of the Canaanites. 
Israel rejected God's promise. They acted in unbelief. And as a result, they were kept from inheriting the land. The generation who turned back in fear died for their choice, and their children were left stranded for 40 years before they themselves could enter the land. And in Psalm 95, God speaks through David to a new generation 400 years later after this event, saying, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The author of Hebrews uses this text to speak to his own generation in the first century. First, he charges them to check their own heart. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He makes the point that just being a part of Israel in the, the nation when they approached Canaan, that didn't solve anyone's problems. They had to believe. They had to trust God's promises and act on them, and we must respond the same way, not trusting on our place in our new covenant community, but rather actively trusting Jesus. Real saving faith responds in obedience. Chapter 4 continues this meditation on Psalm 95, focusing on the rest held out for those who follow Christ. The author makes the point that the rest held out to the Israelites is not over. It's held out as an end for us as well. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 11 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Here the author reminds us of the everlasting rest of eternal life, united with Christ in full salvation. Let us strive to enter that rest, working out our salvation, exercising our faith in obedience to Christ. After this, from chapter 4, verse 14 to 5, verse 10, Hebrews ramps up into a glorious description of the priesthood of Christ. He begins with an exhortation here and then unpacks it. Verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with full confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Recalling chapter 2, we're reminded that Jesus is a Savior who knows us, who was weak like us, and yet who overcame sin. Therefore, we can hold fast to him. We can draw near to him. We can confidently seek mercy and grace from him. And verses like these show the beauty of Hebrews. These verses acknowledge our helplessness. We are weak. We are in need. And that's okay, because Jesus gets it. But it also invites us to draw near. 
Here we are comforted and we are exhorted, all because Jesus is better. Chapter 5 continues describing Jesus' priesthood, quoting Psalm 2 and 110, to show that Jesus was established by God as the true and better high priest for all who believe in him. He is better because he does not need to atone for himself. His perfect intercession and sacrifice allowed him to achieve a perfect and eternal salvation for all who trust in him. Jesus is better than Aaron, the figurehead of the Old Covenant Levitical system. And in fact, Jesus' priesthood is less like Aaron and more like Melchizedek. And I'm sure we all have questions about what that means. But before the author explains, he cuts himself off. And he says, I would love to explain this to you, but you're not ready for it. You're immature. and You actually need something else. In the sternest words of the book, verses five, uh, or sorry, chapter 5, verse 11, through the end of chapter 6, explain that while he wants to talk about Melchizedek, he can't quite yet because they aren't ready to hear it. They can only handle spiritual milk basic truths about the faith, and he wants more for them. He's challenging them not to content themselves with baby food, but rather seek to mature and grow so they can handle steak and potatoes. Chapter 6 contains the starkest warning of the book. Verses 4 through 6 say, For it is impossible in the case of those who once have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And remember that this does not teach that a believer can lose their salvation. Instead, this is a stern warning to the audience that if they continue in immaturity and turn back to their old manner of life in Judaism, their end would be death. They would show themselves to not have the faith that they claim to have. And the next two verses say that very thing. Verse 7, Land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The author says that your fruit proves your root. Believers will produce true, persevering fruit. Those who do not believe will not produce this fruit and instead will fall away. And so we are warned not to fall away. We are warned instead of proving our disbelief to prove our faith, prove our belief. And the author is confident that we will. He says in verse 9, directly after this warning, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to look your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." Believers who can look back on God's work in their life to bring about obedience and love and service should have confidence in the faith that God has produced in them. And they should then double down and earnestly pursue faith-driven obedience. God is not unjust. Hold fast to the end. After this warning in chapter 6, Hebrews 7 returns to the topic of Melchizedek. 
and begins the longest comparison of Jesus to the Old Testament. Chapters 7 through 10 compare Jesus to the Levitical priesthood, to the Old Covenant, the tabernacle, and to the blood sacrifices. And at each point, Jesus is better. First, Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood because he is in the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. Melchizedek is a somewhat mystical figure mentioned only in Genesis 14 and in Psalm 110. He's called a priest of the Most High God, and he blessed Abraham after the patriarch won a victory to free Lot. Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, showing his submission to him. And some think that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, while others believe that he's merely a human who's used as an example. Either way, Christ is said to be in the order of Melchizedek for several reasons, and those reasons are what's important to see. Melchizedek's titles apply to Jesus. He is the king of righteousness, if you translate his name. Or if you use his title, king of Salem, it means king of peace. Both of these apply to Jesus. In addition, Melchizedek did not receive his priesthood by nature of an inheritance, as there's no mention of his genealogy or even his birth. Rather, he is a priest forever in and of himself, as is Jesus. The Melchizedekian priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood because Abraham, the forefather of Levi and Aaron and that priesthood, Abraham was blessed by and paid tithes to Melchizedek. And this seems like an oblique passage to draw significant application from, but the author of Hebrews uses it all to show that Jesus is a better high priest because he is disconnected from the insufficient priesthood of the line of Levi, who died and were replaced year after year. Instead, Jesus' priesthood continues, impeccable, indestructible, perfecting those who have faith in him. In chapter 8, the author quotes extensively from God's promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, largely letting it speak for itself to show that the old covenant was insufficient and that God would replace it with a better covenant, a new promise in which God would write his law upon their hearts and minds. Here he says that Jesus is a better priest who initiates a better covenant. Chapter 9 shows how the tabernacle, the site of the sacrifices, was a temporary fix. One priest could go once a year to offer one sacrifice of atonement only after sacrificing for his own sin. The tabernacle is a site that is made from the example of the heavenly tabernacle, the place of God's dwelling. It is this heavenly tabernacle that Jesus inhabits. And why would we return to a replica when we have the real thing? Jesus' sanctifying death enabled us to come into his presence, not vicariously once a year through a human priest, but personally at any time through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Jesus is better. In chapter 10, the author draws everything together that he's been trying to prove. The law could not perfect us. It served a purpose to cover our sin temporarily, but it did not remove sin. It did not cleanse us. Only Jesus could do that. Jesus came to provide a sacrifice once for all, which places it in an entirely different category than any Levitical sacrifice. Chapter 10, verses 11 through 14 says, 
Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who trust in Christ have confidence in our better high priest who enacts a better covenant with a better sacrifice made from his better blood. Jesus reigns supreme and perfects those whom he sanctifies. Jesus is better. And it is here in chapter 10 that the book tilts from emphasizing and proving that this is true to then emphasizing what we should do about it. In chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, we find examples of the exhortations in this section. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up, stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And let us help our brothers and sisters do the same. The author gives another warning in chapter 10, reminding us that if in response to everything he's just laid out, we reject it and deliberately continue in sin, we will face death. But once again, even as he truly gives us this warning, the author is confident of better things for us. He writes to the audience considering going back to an inferior religion, but he believes they will persevere in their faith in Christ. He reminds them that after they came to faith, they endured suffering already, and they showed real evidence of faith. He trusts that they will continue as they began, turning to Christ instead of turning away. Chapter 10 ends by the author describing this continued endurance that he is confident that they will partake in, as faith. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4, reminding us that the righteous live by faith. And then he confidently asserts in verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He then gives an extended description of the nature of that faith in chapter 11. And this we know well as the hall of faith. This chapter shows how true faith was evidenced already in the lives of many other believers who have come before. And this passage is especially encouraging because it includes imperfect people. We see Sarah, who laughed at God, had faith. Abraham, who repeatedly failed in his calling again and again, had faith. Rahab, a prostitute, had faith. Samson, one of the most morally foolish characters in all of Scripture, had faith. The author is showing us that faith is not about being perfect. It's not about earning a right standing with God through our actions. It's about obeying Christ. 
The firm, confident faith of those who have gone before drove them to follow Jesus. They are not belittled, or they are not condemned for their sin. They're not belittled because they never received the object of their faith while they were alive. Instead, they are commended for showing their faith by stepping out in obedience. Hebrews closes in chapters 12 and 13 by exhorting us to do the same. Chapter 12 opens, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Faith is hard, but it is worth it. Those who came before proved that. Jesus proves it too. Jesus is better, and trusting in him is worth it. So hold fast in faith. The rest of chapters 12 and 13 contain a variety of closing exhortations to endure, to obey, to strive for peace, to seek holiness. The audience must root up bitterness. They must love each other. They should show hospitality. They are to honor marriage, reject covetousness, and submit to their leaders. These are all signs of active, saving faith. And they are all possible because of the effective, perfecting atonement of Christ. And the author closes his magnificent sermon with a benediction, asking God to bless his audience with the ability to respond to the truth of Jesus Christ in faith. It is, necess- it is as necessary a prayer for us today as it was for those in the first century. And so we will close with it as well this morning. This is chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is our prayer for us all today. We're dismissed.